Well, greetings. We're, we're off to a good start because we just sang my favorite hymn, so I see that as a wonderful providence. But um, greetings from the, the church in Riverside. Um, we, we love your church. We pray for you often. And of course, we love your pastors. And um, we, uh, I often get a fellowship with Pastor Kurt at the Reformed Baptist Network meetings and the, the fire conferences as well. And uh, of course, I have uh, a Spudazzo ministry bookmark that when I'm studying sometimes, uh, some of my books, I pull that bookmark out and pray for Pastor Sudar Shan and, and the work there. And just very thankful for how God is using your church. And I'm very privileged to be here to, to preach the word with you. Um, let's, uh, let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your grace and your mercy that you are God who promises to be with your gathered church as she meets. And we pray, O oh God, and confess that we need you. We need your, your grace in our lives. We need your power. We need your word to take effect in our hearts. And we cry out to you, O oh Father, and pray that you fill us with your spirit that you'd even save those and who do not know you, maybe here this morning, that you draw them to yourself and draw all of us near to you for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, if you turn with me to the, the epistle to Philippians, Paul's epistle to the Philippians in the New Testament, we're actually going to be considering a, five different texts, but don't worry, I'm not going into a detailed exegesis on all of these, so we won't be here too long, God willing, but... Um, Philippians chapter 1, first of all, is our first text, verse 27 and 28. The Spirit writes this, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and verses 5 through 8, we continue to read, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God 
will reveal even this to you. And then finally, in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, we read, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace be with you. So, a lot of texts, but I'm sure you heard the connection between these verses. The words translated in English as mind and meditate are a theme that run through these verses. And again, we're not going to engage in a, a detailed exegesis per se of all these verses, but rather in this message, we'll focus on what I would like to call the Philippians mindset. Paul had a premeditated purpose behind writing the, the epistle to the Philippians. Like all of the apostles' letters, Paul wanted to provide spiritual guidance to the congregation in Philippi. What is particularly noteworthy and distinctive about this epistle, however, it's, it's the warmth and the friendliness with which Paul interacts with these precious believers. They had aided him in his ministry and sent friends to comfort him while he was in prison. And they had displayed a special level of love in the midst of their local body. And in light of all this, Paul seems to saturate this letter with joy and a gladdened, repeated call for the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Anyone who has picked up a, a commentary on Philippians or heard a series of messages on this book has probably heard that it is said that this is the epistle of joy. You've probably heard that. And no doubt this is true. But the, in the texts we have selected, we have noted that peppered throughout the book is another theme. A theme that is foundational to all of the imperatives to rejoice and to be joyful. That theme is the imperative to engage the mind, the will, the thoughts of one's heart. A call to take captive one's thoughts to the obedience of Christ and to fight the fight of faith at the source, at the fountain of all our words and actions and deeds in the mind with a certain mindset. The English words translated mind and meditate in these verses all together come from basically three different Greek words, three different Greek roots. Yet all of these words contain the idea, uh, the idea of the will to, to think, the seat of the will, to ponder, etc. And we see Paul deliberately choosing to express himself with these words because he understands that for the church to affect the world with the gospel and the mind of Christ, she must first have her own mind set and engaged on the things of God. You see... The spiritual battle around us doesn't necessarily entail Supreme Court legislation, suicide bombers, the sale and distribution of pornography, genocide, wars, child abuse, drug use, or any of the other fruits of sinful humanity and the works of the devil. All of these things are happening because of what, first of all, people think and are thinking about. 
The actions of the masses are the results of ideas and thoughts and philosophies that have trickled down and infected culture and society. Things aren't just happening. They have an origin. And people, as spontaneous as they may sometimes seem, do what they do because of how they think. Listen to the profound words of Francis Schaeffer in his book, which you probably know, which is also a movie, How Should We Then Live? He writes this, quote, There is a flow to history and culture. This flow is rooted and has its wellspring in the thoughts of people. People are unique in the inner life of the mind. What they are in their thought world determines how they act. This is true of their value systems as it is true of their creativity. It is true of their corporate actions, such as political decisions, and it is true of their personal lives. The results of their thought world flow through their fingers and from their tongues into the external world. This is true of Michelangelo's chisel, and it is true of a dictator's sword, end quote. And Schaefer is astute in his assessment of the state and culture, the state of culture and society. It's been said elsewhere that ideas have consequences. Paul knew this. Jesus knew this. And their words were recorded by the will of the Holy Spirit on the pages of the Bible in order to impact individuals and societies until the end of the age. When we engage in reading and meditating on Scripture, our minds are literally melding with the mind of Christ and his apostles, with the Holy Spirit. Jesus' words began as thoughts in his holy mind, in his divine mind, his human mind as well. They were communicated in word to the apostles and in turn rooted themselves within the minds of the apostles The Holy Spirit, through inspiration, communicated the word of God through the minds of the apostles to be inscripturated on the pages of the New Testament. And as we read and hear the word of God in the Bible, these ideas, these words of the living God, the mind of Christ is implanted within our our very minds. And as we submit ourselves to the mindsets of Scripture, that it exhorts us to have our mindsets produce words and actions which send out ripples across the face of humanity to bring glory to God and obedience to the faith among all the nations. So ideas have consequences, right? Our mindsets have consequences. What does the Bible say about the kind of mindset we should have? Well, here in Philippians... Paul seems to have this underlying theme of making sure we have a certain kind of mind that we are meditating on certain things. What does the apostle of the risen Christ have to say about the way we should think and behave in our thought life? The Philippians mindset in these verses could be summarized under four headings. Unity, humility, the pursuit of acquisition, and the habit of meditation. Let's look at these in order. 
First of all, unity, chapter 1, verses 27, and chapter 2, verse 2, we just read this. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then 2, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, there are two aspects to unity in these passages. First is the unity of striving together for the faith of the gospel. With one mind in the Greek is literally with one soul. And it means to have the same orientation of the will, to have the same attitude. And Paul is calling the Philippians to be unified in their struggle to be Christians and to spread the gospel. The Philippians were to be unified in purpose. Of course, being being part of the church of Christ and gathering together each Lord's Day as a group of believers automatically assumes that the, the Philippians were already unified in purpose. The reason each of them were being written to as a group of people was because they consider themselves believers. That was what they had in common. And their purpose for reading Paul's letter to them was because they had met together to worship the living God. They, they were Christians. Isn't Paul just stating the obvious in a kind of redundant fashion when he says, stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel? Well, today in, in American churches, we might answer such a question and say, no, he wasn't being redundant because we need to be exhorted and prodded and encouraged to seek first the kingdom of God and to spread the gospel because many times we get distracted with the, the numbing realities of living in a pleasure-soaked, pleasure-oriented, luxury-glutted society and culture. And that is indeed a reality for us. And we would do well to make sure we are all, each of us as individuals of this local church, striving for the faith of the gospel. But Paul wrote for the Philippians to be unified in this way, in this striving for the faith of the gospel in a different context. One commentator describes the meaning of striving for the faith of the gospel as that the Philippians are to, quote, stand united in their struggle for the cause of the faith. It's spread in growth, the same goal that was set before all Paul's work, end quote. But this struggle for the spread and growth of the gospel Paul encourages them to be unified in this, not in the context of drowning under the weight of entertainment choices and ice cream flavors, but in the context of persecution. Look at verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries. In verse 25, 29, in this context of being persecuted by adversaries, he says... For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Paul called the Philippians to cling together in unity for the cause of Christ, no matter what society or the Roman Empire or Satan would throw at them. The call is to be unified and standing fast 
Be one in mind. Have your minds together set on being courageous in the face of the opposition of your enemies. Don't retreat into self-centered lives bent on your own individual kingdom building that will see you secure and safe and insulated from the hatred of the world. It doesn't mean quit your job. It doesn't mean don't provide for your family ways and means to enjoy good things. But when Paul considers the group of people known as the Church of Philippi, when we are considered as a group of people in the church in San Diego or in Riverside, what are we unified in? Is it our income brackets? Is it the cars we drive? Is it our skin color, our sports teams, our fashion preferences? Now, we may very well be unified in some of these things. We can't get around all living in Southern California, for example. We're all in this place together. But no doubt we have things in common in some of these secular areas. But what is, what is it we are pursuing as a group? Now, though we fall short and have our warts and all, from what I hear, I think it could be safely said that we indeed have that purpose as a body of believers in Riverside and San Diego. I trust that many of us here today desire deep within our hearts to glorify Christ, to spread his gospel, and we have purpose to do that as Christians. But again, the unity Paul calls for is a unity that has bound us together and together not terrified in any way by our adversaries. Our mindset of unity needs to be one that is gospel-oriented, to be sure, but in the midst of that, one that is courage-filled, filled with courage. Any thinking Christian in America today in 2019 has probably been struggling at times with having the wind knocked out of them by the rapid secularization and the threatening legislation that has been arising lately. Our knees get a little wobbly at times when we put two and two together and we see looming over us the threats of possible intense persecution in the future in various forms. It could very well be that we are going to be tempted more and more to to panic as the dominoes fall in the future. Our mindsets can become one of paranoid anxiety or even worse, set on considering apostasy. We need to thank God that a great deal of the New Testament was written in the context of persecution. We need to take courage by the examples of the apostles and the early believers all of the mind-numbing decadence we have been surrounded with all of our lives can, be, can often be used to, to cripple us into believing that we could never be as stout-hearted and faith-filled as the saints who have gone on before us. All of the technology surrounding us in our day and age can be used to make us believe we are separated from the experience of the church in days gone by. We tend to doubt the supernatural, even as Christians, because in our face every day is a bombardment of seeming evidence of man's autonomy in the form of video images, architectural technology, gadgets, and breakthroughs in transportation and communication. But though all of this surrounds us, 
and often distracts us and numbs us. And more and more, as we are surrounded with an animosity against us, if we don't go along with the flow of the world and the call to have no shame and to pursue all our desires, because what is relative to our personal pleasure is all that matters. Though all these things tower above us and around us like like a tsunami of overwhelming proportions, when you really think about it, we need to take courage. We need to take courage. Be unified, not terrified. We, we need to do, we have to do this. What, what other choice is there? To follow the logic of other choices leads us into darkness and destruction and despair. We could just coast and come to church, maybe even give a tithe, but just kind of be an observer overall. But if you don't strive for the faith of the gospel now, what will you do when the pressure is really on? I mean really on to deny the gospel. And what hope do we have of society and culture getting better if we are not thinking together to spread and to grow God's kingdom? If we do not have this mindset, our words will not say it. Our actions will not do it and the world will not be impacted. Ideas have consequences. If you have decided to have the mindset to coast and not to strive, if you're not unified with others to seek first the kingdom of God, your mindset to cruise and be half-hearted about the cause of Christ, that will have consequences in the world around you. In fact, can it not be said that the secular, secularization of our society, the reality of our post-Christian culture, is partly the result of the mindset of many who have claimed to be part of the church. If the pillar and ground of truth, the church, is not striving for the truth, then the world is going to eventually cave in. The only logical choice we have is to stand fast. To take captive the thoughts of fear that come in, that will come in, Sometimes we get discouraged when we have anxiety or fear, but that's going to happen. It's what you do, it's how you handle that. And we need to bring them into subjection to the cause of Christ and his gospel. And the ability to do so comes from God alone. It comes from God alone. Paul says at the end of this epistle, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And he is there in the, in the immediate context talking about finances and giving. But our text we are considering now is in the, in the wider context. And I believe it can be implied that part of the need God will supply is our need to be courageous. Don't believe that you're so separated from the early believers, from the Puritans even. Because of the advancement of industry and technology and entertainment and communication, sure, things are different in many ways. We, we're not stupid. But just like the saints of old, we have been chosen before 
the foundation of the world to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And as Paul says here in chapter 1, he is confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. If we aren't unified in the struggle to be Christians and to spread the gospel, this church will be dissolved. The church in Riverside will be dissolved. There's no church if we're not unified in that in the very least. When Africa was colonized, Katie and I were missionaries in Africa for about four years in the late 90s and early 2000s. And we learned a lot of about things about the culture there. And one thing is that when Africa was colonized, the European nations made the regions of Africa into their different colonies. And when those European nations in the 20th century gave those colonies their independence, they became the various nations we know in Africa today. The problem is, Africa is a continent of many, many, many different tribes not nations. And Sudan, an area we worked in, is an area where in history past the most intense and divisive tribal conflict has occurred in Africa. When the tribes of South Sudan gathered together in the 80s and the 90s to form the the Southern People's Liberation Army to fight for independence from the largely Muslim Northern Sudan, they were unified as one army as one group of people engaged in a cause. The tribes who warred against each other now fought together in a common cause. And when we were there in the 90s and the 2000s, there was an underlying fear amongst many that if the war was won and South Sudan became a nation, a separate nation, that the tribes within would would again begin to fight one another. The fear was that once the unifying cause was gone, the unifying spirit will be gone as well. And the point here is obvious. To be of one mind in striving together towards something creates great unity. Unity that can hurl differences and even previous feelings of animosity or hatred. The church of Jesus Christ in the world today, in America today, has no hope of maintaining unity in its ranks unless we are together striving for the faith of the gospel. And we can't do that. We cannot do that if we grow terrified by our adversaries. The reality of the situation is that it can be scary. It will be scary at times, but be courageous in the face of that. Stand fast. And if we are striving together in that spirit, we will see the second aspect of unity take place more easily. That is the unity of love. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you Look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. What did Jesus say? He said, by this all will know my disciples, that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Have the same love. Be of one accord, of one mind. This is the 
is one of the most important marks of a healthy church. Love. The doorway to having this kind of mindset is to concern yourself with it. To concern yourself with it. In other words, apply these verses to yourself. Not the brother or sister who has rubbed you the wrong way. Don't spend your thoughts meditating on how good it would be if so-and-so had lowliness of mind. First, remove the plank from your own eye. And the first step towards doing this is realizing that all of us have a plank in our eye to some degree. Each of us as individuals need to set our minds on not expecting to get, on being okay with not receiving anything. Esteem others better than yourself, not as a means towards eventually being lavished with praise and adoration for how good you are to everyone. Love for the body of Christ should, should, cannot be viewed as just a stepping stone to becoming greatly esteemed. Have you made a covenant as a member of this church with the mindset to just receive? No doubt we are all aware that we will be receiving great benefits and much blessing by attaching ourselves as members to a local church. But is your aim to love others, to build up the body, to nourish the body? When we are unified, when we are of one accord to love, to look out, Yes, for your own interests. We can't live without doing that. But not just for our own interests, but the interests of others. Then the church will will thrive and flourish. We need to ask ourselves the question, how would the church be faring if it was made up of just clones of ourselves? Everybody was like you. Would... Now, no, no one doesn't sin, right? We know that. Everybody sins, right? But could your clones be quick to forgive, to esteem each other better than themselves? Or do you think such a church would tear itself apart eventually or be cold and lifeless, un, unable to edify itself? We need to, be, we need to be aware. Bitterness left undealt with will eventually consume our soul. When we think about people here, do our thoughts regarding some tend to skirt around the edge of the whirlpool of bitter thoughts, negative thoughts about our brothers and sisters? We'll talk about meditating on good things in a second. But know this, our love must abound more and more. It's like being in a lake with a massive whirlpool in the middle. You have to keep swimming away from it or you're going to get sucked into the middle and drown to destruction. If we're not pursuing love, sin will suck our thoughts towards selfishness and bitterness and eventually animosity and division. So the Philippians mindset calls us to unity, first of all, but secondly, to humility. Flowing from the context of Paul exhorting the Philippians to do nothing through selfish ambition and to look out for the interests of others, he says in chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is a bomb show. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
How did Christ display this kind of mindset? By an incomprehensible display of humility. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. God coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. The death of the the king of the universe dying as a man on the cross. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, it doesn't say, let this mind be in the person next to you. Or let this mind be in the pastor or the deacon. Or let this mind be in people younger than you. Or people older than you. Or the guy with more resources than you. It says, let this mind be in you. The Son of God is our ultimate example of having a mindset of humility. And whenever our pride is affronted by a humbling circumstance, instead of us seething with thoughts of self-justification and self-preservation, we need to think about what the second person of the Trinity did in the event of his incarnation, eventually in his death for his enemies. Who is this so weak and helpless, child of lowly Hebrew maid, rudely in a stable sheltered, coldly in a manger laid? Tis the Lord of all creation, who this wondrous path hath trod. He is God from everlasting and to everlasting God. That Christ could traverse such a gap from all the glory of deity to all the humility of humanity, to the utter shame and misery of being murdered by his enemies. Enemies he could wipe out in the blink of an eye, all done in order to redeem his enemies and give them all the riches of the inheritance of glory. It's a mind-baffling and mysterious degree of condescension and humility. Who can fathom this? Who can fathom this kind of mindset? And yet Paul says, let this mind be in you. Now we can never think we can attain this level of humility. Okay? We are not the Messiah. We are not the Savior. And yet the mindset, the, the quality of thinking, the character of thought, this is for us to share in with our with our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. As godly as we may think we are, all of us will no doubt in some situation this week be tempted to not take the road of humility, but to take the high road. We will naturally gravitate toward putting ourselves forward, toward giving ourselves the priority, towards exercising our rights and privileges we feel we have as human beings, And the more we pray for humility in our lives, the more we will be faced with the pressure to take this high road. Because it is in the crucible, in the pressure cooker, where our pride is poked and prodded that we have the opportunity to go low. We might look humble, 
But if all, if our situation never affords that we have to forsake pride and put on the mind of Christ in the midst of testing of our faith, well, then how deep does our humility really go? In other words, if God is doing a work in you, if God is drawing you closer to himself and answering your prayers to make you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, then don't be too discouraged when you've, if you often find yourself in situations where you feel offended or just feel like a prideful jerk. You're being tested. You're being worked on. You are being given the opportunity to learn how to take the low road, to walk through the valley of humiliation in the face of the choice of the easy path, the natural path of self-advancement. Perhaps you might be in a season where you just feel like all you're doing is stacking up sin to heaven with your constant attitude of pride over and over again every day at work, every day at home. You just feel like you're as far away from the mind of Christ as any Christian could be. And you say, I know better. I shouldn't be doing this. Am I even a Christian? Many times what we are experiencing is an intense period of the sculptor's chisel. Sure, God is working on big, ugly parts of our hearts, knocking them off piece by piece with each hammer blow, and it hurts, and we feel ugly. But have hope. He's not just prodding sensitive areas in order to make us shiver and shudder with pain. He's not just probing around the wounds in order to get us to cry out in pain. No, he's cutting away the infected area. He's knocking off the pieces of ugly protruding rock. He's making a masterpiece. He's not just breaking rocks. He's not just jabbing at your flesh. He's doing surgery in order to bring healing. He's using his chisel to make you into the image of Christ. There's, there's, there's a great purpose involved in your seemingly purposelessness. There's a great end to it all. We're to have the mind which was also in Christ Jesus, that of humility. But often it comes through testing and choices and affliction and through the agony of failing and being embarrassed by my pride that rises to the surface. And these thoughts dovetail into the next heading of our Philippians mindset, the pursuit of acquisition, the pursuit of acquisition. Our mindset should be one of continual pursuit of laying hold of Christ. The lifelong pursuit of striving to acquire a deeper knowledge of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind Reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. This mind. One of the main emphases here in this passage is that Paul is bringing in a corrective disclaimer to what he has been saying previously. He wants the Philippians to know that in no way has he been perfected. And in no way does he feel perfected. 
Paul, the apostle of Christ, wants us to know that while he was doing all he did through his lifetime, while he was being used to plant churches and spread the gospel and endure suffering and receive revelation from God and following with the risen Christ and write down holy scripture and praying without ceasing, he lived life continually with the realization that he had not attained. He never felt like he had arrived. He never camped out in his mind on thinking about how godly he was or what a high level of spirituality he had achieved. Though he no doubt understood that he had been given great grace and was a leader of the church in his godly living, he didn't have a, a false humility and put himself down so much that he couldn't, he couldn't lead other people. He wasn't shy to not proclaim the gospel and guide the church with the wisdom he had received. And though he felt he was the chief of sinners, he also realized he had been given great grace in drawing near to Christ. But though Paul was aware of all this, at the same time, he put it all behind him. He put it out of his mind, as it were, forgetting those things which are behind. The closer to Christ he got, as it were, the more he realized he had to press on further. He understood that the pursuit of Christ would never end until God saw fit to bring him into glory. Many times we are striving in our Christian walk to attain some kind of plateau of godliness that we, we see out there, we see emulated in another, in another saint or some from, from history, and we want to get to that level. And we're looking to one day to be that great man or woman of God we long to be like. I don't know, maybe it's just me. <laughs> I feel like that sometimes. And many times we, we might experience a season of, of great growth and, and joy and peace. And we could have a moment of feeling like we have attained. Maybe not in the front of our minds, but deep down inside we're like, I've kind of gotten to this level. Trials come in. Sin comes. Distractions come, and the moment or the season escapes us. Our spiritual jalopy breaks down once again. And all we want is to get back to that place we were and to, to stay there. We think that the Spurgeons and the Amy Carmichaels and the Martin Lloyd-Joneses somehow figured out how to stay in that place. And Paul would say, don't really have, you shouldn't really have that kind of mindset. Realize that you're not going to attain in this lifetime. Realize that you have to move onward and upward. Press on. Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, Paul the Apostle, none of them lived on a spiritual plateau. They understood that they were to pursue Christ for their entire lives. Now, sure, later on in Philippians, Paul says, you might be thinking this, he says he learned to be content. We're not saying people can't overall become more and more mature in Christ. If that weren't the case, then we would just be giving up, right? It's a given we're going to continue to sin, but we can become more and more mature in the Lord. Paul had learned how to be content, whether he was abased or whether he was abounding in physical and material circumstances. 
But we know from our text here in chapter 3 and from the rest of his epistles that that doesn't mean he didn't press forward and strive and labor more abundantly and endure the affliction of the thorn in his flesh and despair of life at times and feel crushed and also be besides himself in the joy and excitement of knowing Christ all wrapped up in one big bundle. The contentment Paul learned didn't make him a stoic. You ever think that? that you're going to arrive as a Christian, you're going to be this stoic person, right? It's not true. We're not, necessarily, we're not necessarily bipolar if we go through ups and downs a lot. These will no doubt occur. Great times of experiencing God's presence and fellowship will occur. Great times of being used by God will occur. Great times of maintaining the Philippians' mindset will occur. But failures will also occur. We will grieve the Holy Spirit. We will offend, hurt, or discourage other people. As the surgeon cuts and the hammer blows, we will be overwhelmed at times at how wicked our own mindset can often be. Forget all those things. Move on towards Christ. He has laid hold of you, Christian. He has purchased you to make you like himself. Don't sulk. Don't cower in fear. Don't coast. Do him the honor of pressing forward with all your might to lay hold of him. Run the race with endurance. When you reach the finish line, then you can stop running. But we are to live life with the mindset that we are ever pursuing to acquire the prize. And finally, our last point, we need to develop a mindset that has the habit of meditation, the habit of meditation. Now realize that scripture-sanctioned meditation is nothing like the emptying of the mind in Eastern religions. We are to develop the habit of filling our mind with good things. Here, here Paul in chapter 4, verse 8 Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And the Greek word translated meditate means to ponder, chew on these types of things. It's not clearing your mind until you float away in some kind of trance-like meditative state. Rather, we're to consider all the aspects of, of good report, things of good report. Think of chew and chew on all the ins and outs of things that are lovely and praiseworthy. The idea here is, again, we're, we're not to just coast. So often our mind is flooded with wickedness, bitterness, anger, resentment, filthiness, and too often we just kind of try to ride it out. Just kind of, oh, we're going to hold on here and let this pass, right? Or we try to distract ourselves with some other activity. Maybe pop a Tylenol or something or flick on the television. But the apostle here is saying that we need to make an effort. Thinking and meditating and pondering on pure things, on good things, can be very strenuous and difficult. We can give up on it quickly. In fact, many times we might read this verse and really have no idea practically 
what it is talking about. We have no idea what meditating on things praiseworthy really looks like because we've never really made an effort at any length of time to develop this habit. We just take life as it comes. Our mindsets are dictated to by our blood sugar level or whether or not there's traffic on the freeway. In other words, we're saying we aren't to be passive when it comes to what fills our minds. But also note that these ethical qualities, these, these qualities of virtue that Paul lists does not mean that we are to only think about these things that are religious, so to speak. What we mean is that pure and noble things are not to be only found in, in Christians or in reading Christian books or in the church. And, and to be sure, Paul has in mind thinking about the words of the hymns we just sang, uh, meditating on the words of Scripture and the things heard in sermons and read in Christian books. But he's not only thinking about filling our minds with these things. Ponder the beauties of good architecture. Think about how clever and amazing jet airliners are and the wonder of the global transportation system. Thank God for the carpet in your home if you have carpet. Think about how friendly your waiter might have been at the restaurant you just went to earlier this week. Think about the wonder of language and grammar and vocabulary and accents and script and fonts. What a miracle of reality that you have eyes and you can perceive the beauties of that sunset or see the colors of the tropical fish in the aquarium. And how amazing is man's mind that he could conceive of things like national parks and zoos and movies. How noble are some of the characters in the Lord of the Rings? Think about the spirit of creativity and passion in Beethoven who composed his greatest works after he had gone deaf. And oh, the wonders of air conditioning and fans. Who cannot ponder the wonders of medical science and not be filled with thanksgiving and amazement? Though they might be unbelievers and even anti-Christ in their mindset, thank God for all the philanthropists out there and the good they do to the poor and needy. And oh, the blessings of the postal system and UPS and FedEx. But then we say, well, look at the political world. Look at the threats to the economy. Look at terrorism. Think about how horrible things are getting in the world around us. My kids can't play out in front of the house anymore. Well, it's easy to think about those things. It's, it's easy. Anybody could do that. We just have to coast. And our minds will be filled with those things. And Paul isn't saying we're to be naive and be unaware of what's going on in the world, okay? But spend time pondering what is pure, what is praiseworthy. Jesus Christ died for you if you're a Christian here. Meditate on the love God has for you a little longer, a little more often. It's good to think about the fact that you're unworthy and that your sin is rotten, but that is in order that you might receive the unmerited grace, the mercy, and the love that is to be found and had in knowing Christ Jesus, your Redeemer. 
Set your mind to get to that place of resting in Christ's love for you. Yes, we need to repent and weep and grieve over our sin, but don't do that to just stay in that place. Don't think you're being humble if you're remaining depressed about your sin all the time. Your unworthiness will always be a reality. Go to your Savior. Meditate on his love and his care for you and worship him like Mary Magdalene did when she saw the risen Christ at the empty tomb. Bow before him in love and adoration. Think about how lovely he is, how worthy he is. Yes, we should do so in fear and reverence, but also there are times to meditate on how good he is towards you and how, how he, he longs to sup with you and to commune with you. Think about what it will be like to fellowship with the saints in the garden-like glorious city of the new earth. You ever spent time doing that? You say, well, the scripture doesn't tell us what it's going to be like. Think about walking in the purity. Use your imagination. Walking in the purity of a renewed creation with the air in the perfect temperature, with birds singing glorious songs and the flowers filling the air with wonderful fragrances and conversations being mixed with inexpressible notes of harmony and singing and joy and laughing and sincerity of love and unimaginable peace and contentment. Meditate on these things. Make the effort to develop the habit. And as we cultivate this mindset, what will our words be like? What will our actions be like? What can flow from us out into the external world around us? As we cultivate the Philippians mindset, we will not begin more and more to, re- will we not begin to more and more rejoice in the Lord Jesus? Are these things for the apostles alone to experience? Was Paul writing this saying, hey, I'm the apostle, you can try to get to this place, but don't ever expect to experience these things fully. No. Was it only the hope of the early believers to be able to think this way? Are we in the 21st century a special case in so much that we cannot hope to live according to a New Testament mindset? The reality is we will be abased at times And we will abound at times. But through it all, strive courageously to be a Christian and spread the gospel. Have the mind of Christ and follow his example of humility. Have the mindset to pursue Christ until the finish line. Realizing that no great saint of the past ever attained a spiritual plateau of perfection in this life. And finally, develop the the habit of pondering the good the pure, the noble, the wonderful, the good gifts God has given to you and the world around you. Teach me, O Lord, thy holy way and give me an obedient mind that in thy service I may find my soul's delight from day to day. Guide me, O Savior, with thy hand and so control my thoughts and deeds that I may tread the path which leads right onward to the blessed land. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for...
the truth we read in Scripture, the, the, the communication you give to us through the Holy Spirit. And we do pray, Lord, that you'd, we just confess that we, are, we cannot keep this mindset in and of ourselves. We are overwhelmed at the call you give to us to be like Jesus. And we, we confess that we need him to fill us with the Spirit, Lord, and cause us to, to be prodded to, to seek you and to, to, to live for you, Lord. But we also pray that we would know and wash ourselves in the milk of the gospel, that we are saved from our sins because of what Jesus did for us, because he rose from the dead. And there's nothing we can do to earn it and nothing that can separate us from your love. We pray these things and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.